All right, let's talk about, we're going to talk about fiery serpents. Fiery serpents tonight. Stand with me for the reading of the word. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. The word of the Lord, it says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes, our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he put it on a pole, and so it was, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Heavenly Father, we just pray, Lord God, this night that you would open up our hearts to your word, Lord God. Again, what we see here is a typology and a foreshadow of your son. Yahweh was sharing with Moses 1,500 years before Yeshua came and died on the cross. Hear this great revelation about the Lord who was hanging on the cross. And for all who would look to him, that Lord God, that poison of sin, Lord God, would leave them and they would have that gift of life, eternal life. So Father God, I just pray, Lord God, that you would lead us here again and teach us and be glorified in Jesus' name, amen. I just want to show you something. This is, uh, this is called the cycle of the book of Judges. If you read through the book of Judges, this cycle is repeated over and over again throughout the book. But it's also a cycle that you see repeated with Israel as they wander through the desert. So I just want to show you, what happens is the people turn from God. So here we are again, the people are turning from God. Okay, God judges, and I'm going to say here, God judges by delivering the people to their enemies. That's what happens in Judges. In this case, God judges them by delivering them to fiery serpents. The people then, basically, they repent, they confess their sins, and they turn back to God, God sends a judge to rescue them. In this case, the judge is Moses. And then there's a period of peace only to have them repeat the whole cycle again over. And we've been going through this as we're going through the book of Numbers. It's just over and over and over again. It's like every, every I don't even know what the timetable would be. Every few months, every year or so, you see this cycle being repeated. Now, let me just show you something here. I've seen this cycle repeated in the lives of people in the church. I've been, I've been preaching in the, you know, the Word of God for 40 years, and I've seen this in the lives of people. And again, what you see is people will turn from God. They'll get caught up in the world. God will send things into their lives to discipline them. They will awaken, and they will turn back to God. And then God sends here a, a judge to rescue them. What he sends is his son and his grace they experience that grace, and then they experience a period of peace. Many times, though, just to repeat the whole cycle again, it just becomes, it becomes a habit. That's a, the, the ride of that. That is the, the experience of a lot of people in churches. So 
let's dig in. And uh, I want to look at, a, a, again, a number of key things here. The first thing is the rebellion in verses 4 and 5 of Numbers chapter 21. I want you just to, again, look at this. This, this is, um, is heart-wrenching. <laughs> then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. So that's the first thing. They became very discouraged. Let me say this to you. Discouragement is the work of the enemy. Encouragement is the work of God. God will never discourage you. God will always encourage you. Satan, Satan is the, you know, the artist of discouragement and bringing discouragement into people's lives. So this, again, this, this is the work, you know, the enemy, the enemy is here. He's, you know, he's working, he's working behind the scenes. And Israel, right, are getting discouraged. And then it says, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Now, it's bad enough that they're continuously speaking against Moses. Now they're speaking against God. Let me just tell you this. You know what the saying is that the person is playing with fire? This, this isn't fire. This isn't dynamite. This is nitroglycerin. When people begin to rebel against God, it's a very dangerous place to be. So then it says, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And our soul loathes the worthless bread. This is the manna from heaven, the provision of God. What did we talk about a few weeks ago? The manna from heaven is a foreshadow and a typology of who? This is, this is direct, again, directly rejecting the grace of God. This is directly, you know, rejecting Yeshua. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's a major rebellion. Now, what is God doing here with Israel? And it's important to ask yourself that question. When you're going through times, maybe you're going through a drought. Maybe things aren't going the way you want. You may be having difficulties, relational difficulties. You may be having financial difficulties. You have challenges in your life. What is God doing in your life when that has happened? What was God doing here with Israel when, when this is happening? So that we're, we're thirsty. We want something more than this manna that you're giving us. And boy, we're discouraged because it's taking a long time, right? It, taking a really long time to get to the promised land. It should have taken a month, maybe three weeks. It took 40 years. You're not getting to where you want to go. Maybe there's something wrong here. Now, what is God trying to do with Israel? And I'll bring it again back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. It's a commentary on Israel's journey to the promised land. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Right? Notice what God was doing. To humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God, God is trying to teach them humility. And let me just say, where do we learn humility the best? Not when we're, we're riding high and standing tall. We learn humility the best. I don't know about you. I've learned humility when I've been knocked down. I've learned, I've learned humility when I'm on my knees. I was, watching, I was watching on Sunday afternoon a documentary on Oscar De La Hoya. I don't know if you remember Oscar De La Hoya, the fighter. I mean, he's a golden boy. Oscar De La Hoya, I mean, he, he was making $40 million a fight. $40 million in one night. And, I mean, he was a celebrity, he, he married movie, a movie star, everything was, you know, and he's sharing because 
what happened was he crashed. But he was saying how he was so prideful, how he was so arrogant, and that he, he just, you know, he just wasn't getting it. And it, he, had, he had to experience just that, I mean, that, that downturn where he experienced humility. And when he's, when he's sharing, I mean, he's a completely different man than they're showing from the videos of, you know, when he was, you know, winning, you know, and making $40 million a year for a fight. But that's, that's where we learn humility. We learn humility when, I'll tell you, we learn humility in the tough times. We learn humility in the hard times. You ever see somebody where just everything's going great, everything's going great, and they're just, they're just more and more and more puffed up? Hey, see, this with preachers. See, pre- I mean, preachers, preachers who look more like a, I mean, they, they look like a, um, a peacock on the, on the platform, you know, strutting up and down, you know, putting on a, putting on a show than, you know, than a humble, you know, humble man of God. Let's tell you this to you. In my early days, I was there. And God, you know, God had to humble me. And, uh, you know, tough times, tough times come and they break us. So he breaks us to make us. So that's something God is doing. He's humbling them. And then it says, and you, and, and test you to see what is in your heart. He's, he's testing them. A test reveals, right, what we really are. And these tests that Israel is going through is revealing, in, in this case, it's revealing their lack of faith, their lack of obedience, their lack of love for God. Now, there are other times where tests will reveal your faith, your obedience, and your love for God. But it's not God up there looking down at us going, I need to test Pastor Frank so I can see what's in his heart. He knows what's in my heart. He knows exactly what I'm going to do. Right? He, he knows everything about me. He knows every decision, every thought that I'm going to make to the day that I die. So it's not him up there going, you know, hey, you know, Jesus, Holy Spirit, let's see, let's see what's in this guy. They know what's in me. God knows what's in me, but I don't know what's in myself. And it's not until you really kind of get in the fire that you really see your strengths and weaknesses. And that's what God is doing. So he, he is testing them, and he is basically working in them to make them more godly. And that's the purpose of this difficulty that they're going through right now in Numbers chapter 21. Again, what they reveal, and I'll just I'll use a quote from Acts chapter 7, 21. Stephen says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, and he's talking here to the religious leaders of his time, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. They were stiff-necked. And what does stiff-necked mean? Uh, if you take an ox, you put the yoke on the ox, eventually the ox develops tremendous callus where no, the, the yoke can no longer control or steer the ox. These people, they're, they're essentially, their hearts are so calloused that God cannot direct them. And you see people like that in life. I mean, they're, they're, their hearts are, are so hard, they're so callous that, you know, God, God can't reach them. It's one of the dangerous things about the older a person gets, you know, if you know this, the, the age where most people are accepting Jesus at this time, right, and, and really through history, is kids like 10 years old, 11, 12, 13. The older a person gets, like when you get up, like you may, you may have 70% of people accept Christ before they're 16 years old. By the time you get up to people 60, 70 years old, it's a fraction of 1%. And what has happened is their heart has become harder and harder and harder. 
And that's what makes it difficult. Let me just say, I'll give you hope, because my father accepted the Lord at 68 years old. And we've seen people, who, you know, that, where that happens. But it, it's, not, it's not the norm. That's why it's so important for us to reach those kids. And that's why I put so much emphasis on our children and our children ministries because we need to reach them. We need to reach them now because there's never going to be a greater opportunity to do that than right now. So he, he describes them that. Now, let me, let me share something here. Another thing that you see with, with Israel in this situation they're discouraged, again, because they're not getting to the promised land. It is the promised land. God has made a promise, right? God has made all sorts of unbelievable promises to us that we are not going to experience until either the rapture happens or we go home to be with the Lord. So we can get impatient. And I think their, their experience, I don't know, how many, how many of you have children? Just raise your hands. How many of you have ever experienced this with your children? Are we the only ones? Are we there yet? Let me tell you, driving to North Carolina, we just go to that, down to North Carolina vacation, 11 hours. And while we're down there on a, this is like a, a country road, it's all the cornfields. And uh, my kids, my three kids are in the back and they're just driving me absolutely nuts. It's like, it's like we've been driving for like nine, 10 hours. And I pulled over on the side of the road, and I got out. And I'm walking along the road. Sue's driving next to me. She's like, come on now, come on now, get, it, get back in the car. And my kids are all in the back crying, Daddy, Daddy. And I was, I was going to go in the cornfield, never going to see me again. But I tell you, I, just, I, lost it for, I lost it for a couple of seconds there. So they, they, they are extremely impatient and this is something that impatience on the promises of God is a dangerous place to be. So if you look at Isaiah chapter 40, 31, great passage, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not be faint. Just those who wait, and that's a simple, simple verse who wait upon the promises of the Lord. Some of those promises you're going to receive in this life. Some of those promises you're not going to receive again until you're glorified and you're with the Lord. You see people lose patience. Look at, look at uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 45 through uh, 51. I'm going to be teaching on some of this on Sunday, talking about just kind of giving a prophecy update of things that are going on in the world. But just look at, look at what Jesus says here. He gives all the signs. He talks about, right, his coming. And then he says this, he says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, watch this, my master is delayed or delaying in his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. Here's a person who is no longer waiting. They've given up. This is the, the, the person who is incredibly... In, uh, I'm just, you know, hey, the Lord's not coming. And then in verse 50 he says, And the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and an hour that he is not aware of, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We need to be patient in waiting 
on the things of the Lord. And again, you see here with Israel, they weren't, and it was getting them in a lot of trouble. So again, you have, again, this rebellion, then you have judgment. And so in verse 6, uh, so the Lord uh, sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Interesting word, uh, fiery serpents. Anybody know what that word is? Seraph. The word is seraphim. The word seraph, you know, there are cherubim and there are seraphim. The word, the word here is, is seraph, and it means burning. Simply, you know, burning. They, they essentially, when it says but poisonous, it's essentially poisonous serpents, or serpents that when they bite you, you're going to burn. They're going to cause, you know, tremendous pain. So an adder uh, in Israel, uh, cobras, uh, you know, the concept here of flaming serpents, burning serpents. Now, I want to show you a couple of interesting things in, in Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15, actually, I put the Hebrew. Somebody asked me about when you're quoting some of these Scriptures, would you give us the Hebrew? And uh, I just want to give you this. Who led you through the great and terrible wilderness with serpents, seraphim, and scorpions, a parched land with no water in it. Here's describing that this, this again, the, the wilderness. And we've been in the wilderness many times in Israel. I don't think it's, it's much different than it was then. I mean, it's just, it's just rocks and sand, and you've got scorpions, and you, you know, you've got snakes, and you've got a lot of different wild animals there. But the wilderness, again, serpents, scorpions, and again, these seraphims. Another passage of scripture describes seraphim that can fly. Flying snakes. I'll show you here again, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 6, a prophecy concerning the animals of the Negev through a land of hardship and distress of lion and lioness of adder and flying seraph, flying serpents. It's interesting, in, in the 17th century, the Assyrian king, uh, you read about him, Ezar Hayden, we see him uh, appearing in the scriptures, Ezar Hayden actually wrote about flying snakes throughout the Negev. And here's, here's uh, this is actually a, um, something that was, it was essentially something an archaeologist had dug up from the 7th century, and uh, it's in the Oxford, it's Oxford University Museum, but notice it, it is a flying serpent. So some people actually look at this and that these serpents were not only, again, fiery serpents of poison, they were actually flying serpents that were released on the people of Israel. There, there is, by the way, this is a, a picture of, uh, of snakes. They actually don't have wings, but they leap. I don't know if you've ever seen this on the, you know, the nature shows. They leap from tree branch to tree branch, and they will leap down on their prey, and that could be another possibility. I want to show you one, one other thing about, and this, this is not what I'm going to share with you. This is not uh, a reference to what we're looking at in Numbers chapter 21. But I've shared this about seraphim. The angels, right? These seraphim, cherubim, different, different types of angels, different ranks of angels. And the seraphim that are described in Isaiah chapter 6, 2, okay? Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and two he, uh, he actually flew with. And that's, again, that's a, a picture we, you know, the artist is trying to depict something like that. But I've said this, the seraphim are like flames of fire, you see a lot of things happening with all this UFO stuff going on. 
I, I actually don't believe that we're being visited by little green men from other worlds. I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. Uh, I do believe that a lot of these things, though, are not man-made, and they cannot be naturally explained. I believe that they're supernatural. And you look at a lot, a lot of these things that are seen, again, are these, these bright lights in the sky. You just start looking. You can find videos on YouTube. You can you know, find all kinds of pictures on Google. That's, that's a picture. Again, these, these, bright, these bright lights suddenly appear in the sky. I'm sure some of them can be explained you know, as military. But I do believe a lot of these things that are happening are the angelic realm. And that could be, by the way, the demonic realm as well as the, you know, the righteous you know, and godly angels. Then we're seeing a lot of that right now. Again, the military, the military is now, you know, pilots coming. You got the guy, what was he, the, uh, the pilot who came out on, on the, uh, last Monday, and he's just coming right out and saying there's, there's just a lot of supernatural things that are happening here that we can't explain. So you have judgment. Okay, the fiery serpents are biting Israel. So then you have a, a confession in verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. You ever have somebody, they hurt you or you know, they sin against you and they come back and they say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. And then they do it again. And then they come back and they say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm never going to, never going to. And then they do it again. And they do that over and over again. And then you, you realize something that what it is, is it's a sin habit. It's a cycle. And just coming and confessing your sins, okay, is not enough to get rid of the sins. So God, God gives us a prescription. I'll just say this. Israel has an issue here because they just keep repeating this problem. They, they keep complaining against God, griping against God, whining against God, and murmuring and gossiping. Remember you said gossip is a disease that spreads. And so they just keep repeating this. And then, and then God judges them. And it's like they come back and they say, oh, we're so sorry, we're so sorry, we're so sorry. And then they just do it again. How do you get rid of sin? How do you really, how do you change? And, and God gives us a wonderful, let me tell you, God, I mean, gives us a wonderful solution I don't use the word formula, but if you look at, at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20 through 24, you might want to really make a note of this for your personal life to look at. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off, you have to put off, that's the first half, Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to its deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on a new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So you need, you need to put off the old, and you need to put on the new. Now I just say this, putting off the old interrupts the pattern. Sin, sin has a pattern. Any habitual addictive sin, there is a pattern. Gossip has a pattern, right? You know, anger, lust, rage, you know, bitterness, uh, stealing. They, there's a pattern there. 
And the pattern has to be disrupted, and uh, putting off disrupts the pattern. But it doesn't permanently change the pattern. How do you get the air out of a cup? You've heard this many times from me. How do you get the air out of a cup? You need to fill it with something, right? It's empty. It's filled with air. You need to fill it with liquid. You need to fill it with H2O. That is how you get the air out of a cup. When is a liar not a liar? People say, well, a liar is not a liar when they stop lying. No. They may stop lying for, for some time. They're going to go back to lying. Scripture makes this again clear. You have to put off the old to put on the new. The passage goes on, Ephesians chapter 4, 28. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. When is a liar not a liar? When they become a truth teller. When they just focus on speaking the truth, and the truth just flows from them, and there's no place in their life for lies. When is a thief not a thief? Well, a thief is not a thief when they stop stealing. No, that's not, that's not when a thief is not a thief. They can stop stealing for a time. Eventually, they're going to come back, and they're going to be stealing again. Ephesians chapter 4, 28, let him who stole no longer, but rather let him labor. So he's put off, he stops stealing, let him labor, working with his hands, what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. When, again, is a thief no longer a thief? Not only when they stop stealing, but when they work, they provide for themselves and they become a giver. When is a gossip not a gossip? When is a murmur not a murmur? When is a complainer not a complainer? It goes on in verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. If Israel had really adopted this and began to speak words of encouragement, of edification, words of, of, of praise to the Lord, words of thanksgiving, and that was what was going on, they wouldn't have gone back and returned again to this vicious cycle of continuously murmuring, complaining, and gossiping. There's just something. If you have a sin struggle, some type of addictive sin struggle. And you know in your hearts what, what, you know, what you're dealing with. Some of you may not. God bless you. One of, the, one of the greatest ways to fill the cup is praise. I, say the, I, I was teaching when I was teaching on, you know, this last couple of weeks on, on spiritual warfare, plugging into the word of God. The thing, though, there are times you're not going to be able to plug in. You know, you can't, you can't have your Bible in front of you. I mean, you can have scripture verses that you're memorized, but you're working. You're working, you're doing things, you're in jobs, you've got your careers. But you can always be praising God. And, and the, scripture, the scripture says in, in Psalm uh, chapter 22, verse 3, the Lord inhabits the praise of his people. Do you know what the picture is there? The Lord basically enthrones himself on your praise. When you are praising God, you're giving glory to God, you're praising the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes and he is basically going to manifest himself in your life. And he's going to manifest himself with peace, he's going to manifest himself with joy, he's going to manifest himself with his power, with his love. But that is again, that is a great way to put off and, and put on. So Israel comes again and they confess but they're not putting off the old and putting on the new because you're going to see this just continues to happen. It happens for years. Number four is intercessor, verse seven. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord 
that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Moses is the intercessor. Moses is a typology of Jesus. But again, all these typologies that we're looking at, right? The, the red heifer is a typology of Jesus. We see, we see again the Ark of the Covenant is a typology of Jesus. Joseph is a typology of Jesus. Here, Moses. Moses is continuously basically throwing himself between rebellious Israel and a holy God and pleading with them, or pleading with God not to destroy them. So here he's again, he's, he's a picture of Jesus who is the ultimate intercessor. In Hebrews chapter 7.25, it says of Jesus, therefore he is also able to save to the outmost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He hung on the cross down below, right? Sinners, all of them. Not, not just the ones who nailed him to the cross or the Pharisees who manipulated him to the cross, but his own followers, John and Mary and Mary Magdalene, and you know, just they're, they're all sinners, sinful man at the bottom of the cross. Up above is a holy God who is holy, 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 perfect, pure, without sin, who demands holiness and purity. Sinful man can't come to a holy God. Jesus hung on the cross to make intercession. He is the bridge between sinful man and a holy God, and he intercedes for us to reconcile us, to redeem us, to bring us to God, and to give us forgiveness and restore that relationship. Number five, deliverance. So in, in verse, I'm going to go to, I'm sorry, I'm going to go to verse eight here. I put verse four. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Again, here's a picture of sin and the poison of sin. That brings death. And the bronze serpent, what? Again, a foreshadow of Jesus who hung on the cross. Now Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, he quoted from the book of Numbers chapter 21, and he said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When we look to Jesus by faith, right, that poison of death, sin, is removed. Now, some people may look may look at this and say, "Well, Jesus, a you know, if, if he didn't say it, boy, I don't think we'd we'd be here saying it." But he said that right. He is like the bronze serpent. Why why a bronze serpent? Serpent represents sin. Serpent connected with with the devil. Why a serpent? What, what did Jesus become on the cross? He became sin. That's, a, that's, a, a, that's an interesting passage in Corinthians, right? But he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of, of God. So here is, here is the Lord on the cross taking all of our sin upon himself to the point that the Father could not even look at him, right? He turned, it seems he like, turns away. And Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And again, that is all the sin and hell being placed upon Jesus. So again, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What's eternal life? Eternal life is life, right? People, people say, well, it's life, it's life never ending. But that's, that's not what really, that, that's, that's part of it. Like, you know, I guess if we broke it up, that would be, you know, maybe a piece of the pie. Life never ending. Jesus described eternal life in John 17.3 by saying, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That eternal life is, is to know God. Eternal life is to know Jesus. And that through Jesus we come to know the eternal Father. And it's to have a relationship with God. That's what, that, again, I, I, you hear me say this, you've heard me say this. Lou, you've been here a year, you've heard me say it a thousand times. You know, it's a relationship. A relationship. It, it was a relationship for Abel. It was a relationship for Noah. It was a relationship for Abraham. It was a relationship for Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David. And, and it's a relationship for all the New Testament saints. It's a relationship that we have. And the word, the word there to know, and it's, this is an important one. I, I throw a lot of Greek words, Hebrew words at you. Genosko. It means to know intimately. Because you, see, you could know about Jesus, but to know him intimately. And that happens again. That happens when you, 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 you take him into your life. And you begin to work out this, this relationship. And you start to walk with him in this journey. And we don't do it perfectly. And you know what happens when we don't do it perfectly? Guess what we come to know? How much he loves us. My, my imperfections, my failures have showed me, you know, year after year that God loves me. And, and it's, it's a love of grace. It's, you know, it's, it's a love of acceptance. It's a love of mercy. And, I'm, you know, I'm not proud to say that, hey, I fall short of the glory of God. But I do fall short of the glory of God. And yet he continuously shows me that incredible love, that incredible grace, that incredible mercy, as well as his holiness, and his truth. So here's our, here's our final note. A final note for tonight. I want to I take you to Luke chapter 24, 44 through 45. And I just want to end with this. Again, what, what we have looked at in just the last few weeks. We have seen typology after typology. Foreshadow after foreshadow. Of Jesus in the Tanakh. Okay? And here in, in the book of, of Numbers. Again, over and over again. He is the manna. He is the serpent on the stick. Right? He is the red heifer. All these different things that we've been looking at, just, just in the last four weeks, so many things in the book of Numbers. And you know what? When you, we begin to experience, I don't know about you, I get so excited learning these things. Most churches won't touch the Old Testament. And many churches, I mean, who's, who do you know is preaching through the book of Numbers? Right? Just, you know, who do you know? Go online and look at, look, look at all the top preachers, right, in America. They, you know, who's preaching through the book of Numbers? And yet it's, it's filled and rich with these typologies and foreshadows and revelations of Jesus. 
So in Luke chapter 24, verse 44 through 45, it says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's Tanakh. That's our Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. Concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And that's the day of the resurrection. He's showing them in scriptures, right, that he is the serpent on the stick. That he is the red heifer. That he is the tabernacle. Right? That he is the fulfillment of the five sacrifices of Leviticus. That he is Abel's offering. That he is Noah's ark. That he's the sacrificial lamb that was provided to Abraham and Isaac. That he's the Passover lamb. On and on and on we can go. So that, that is, I think, something to, you know, just, I, I just want to encourage you, grasp onto that, and the Old Testament will come alive to you. It will become, I mean, it will become exciting to you. And I pray and hope that it would become exciting to you as it, as it has to me. Because it's truly, it's truly, you know, a wonderful journey, okay? Next week we're going to shift, and um, we're going to get into some, uh, some interesting things about Og of Bashan, Find out who that guy was. And then we're going to see Balaam. We're going to get into Balaam and Balak. And Balaam's error. Holy Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. I thank you, Father God, for just... Uh, Lord, the people who come out here, Lord God, on Wednesdays and um, on Sundays to hear the word of God. And I pray, Lord God, that their hearts would grow with a greater appreciation each and every day because your word of God is truly amazing. It's living, it's active. Lord God, it's powerful. It encourages our hearts. It fills us with hope. Lord God, it increases our love. It fills us with peace and joy, and I thank you for that. We thank you for your word, and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.